Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome to Bullshift, the podcast where we talk about behavioral finance from the perspective of optimism bias and how the financial services industry shifts your attention to be more optimistic. My name is John DeGuy. I'm the author of the book, Bullshift, and the host of the podcast. My guest this week is Fred Vatisse. Fred is the former chief actuary at Morneau Chappelle. He has uh, spent a lot of time consulting with Canadians, helping them plan for their retirement, and especially for those people who don't have defined benefit pension plans. He's written hundreds of articles for the Globe and Mail and the National Post. He's written four books on retirement planning, the most the most uh, important of which, in my opinion, is Retirement Income for Life, which is a, a national bestseller and which is the main thing that I want to talk to Fred about today. Fred, welcome. Hey, John, how are you? I'm great. I wanted to see if we could start by perhaps having you give us a very quick overview of, of your career, what you've been doing, how you got into being a, an actuary, and, and what it is that motivates you as an actuary and as a consultant. Well, I, uh, I, I joined uh, the profession. I Actually, I've, I've spent my whole career in the, in the pension consulting field, uh, usually consulting to... Uh, uh, and large employers about their their defined benefit pension plans. Um, that's certainly how I got started. It started morphing, I guess, around uh, uh, around ten or fifteen years ago, where I started spending more and more time focusing on the individual and the problems that people who don't have defined benefit plans face as they're uh, approaching retirement. The ones who have to rely on their own savings. So that's kind of how I got into writing articles for the Globe and Mail, National Post, and so on. It's it's important work because for people who give advice to investors, uh, ordinary Canadians, uh, it's perhaps the biggest challenge that people face. So a lot for the past generation, uh, the focus has been on wealth accumulation. And as we have uh, an entire generation, a large demographic of people that are now retiring, uh, the, the, the thought that needs to be given to purposeful decumulation that will last as long as you do but still meet your needs is the sort of thing that has gone largely unaddressed almost shockingly for for a very long time so i i want to thank you for the work you do because it helps a lot of people to to deal with the uh, the quandaries that a lot of people are, are are facing these days so from there i want to segue into uh, your book retirement income for life and in particular in the book you mentioned five different things that people can do to secure their retirement and um i can maybe invite you to to rhyme them off if they're off the top of your head if not we can just start talking about them one at a time have you got them have you got them already in your old it's, noggin i think so i I've, I've talked about them enough and i've written about them enough over the years um so the first one is, is about uh, reducing your investment fees. There have been a number of studies done uh, to, to indicate that, uh, it, it, that, that there isn't really very much of a correlation between uh, investment fees paid and, um, 
and uh, investment performance. Another way to put that would be that you can you can pay an awful lot more for for, for investment fees, for example, by mutual funds. And it doesn't actually do anything to enhance your your investment returns. Um, and that uh, that's actually something I showed just in uh, one of my global mail charts simply a couple of weeks ago. It makes a pretty big difference. I, if I leave in my example that I have in my book, I show that it may add by reducing your fees from say a 1.8% level, which is pretty typical of a of somebody in mutual funds down to 0.6%, which is quite doable with, uh, say, robo-advisors. Um, you can reduce your, uh, you, so you can add a, maybe another three or four years worth of retirement income. Mm-hmm. So it makes quite a big difference. So that was the first one right off the bat. Second one is about uh, deferring Canada pension plan uh, pension. You can wait until age 70 to defer it. You can start at zero to 60, age 60. Uh, maybe almost half of the Canadians started 65, which they still regard as normal retirement age, although uh, that means less and less over time. And by deferring until age 70, you get 42% more pension, but you might say, yeah, but you're, you're missing out on five years of, of pension uh, income. However, the study, the, uh, the, the math shows very, very simply that the vast majority of people do a lot better by, by waiting another five years. That actually, I think, is maybe my, my key enhancement. Um, then we uh, go on to enhancement number three. So by doing that, by the way, what you're doing is you're offloading risk, investment Mm -hmm. risk and longevity risk to the government. So enhancement number three is offloading more risk, both in investment and and longevity risk, but this time to an insurance company by the purchase of of an annuity. So that's what uh, enhancement three is all about. The idea there is you might uh, allocate, say, 25% of your RS. RSP assets at retirement to, uh, to buy an annuity from an insurance company. And, um, and, and by doing that, then it means that 25% of your assets are no longer um, subject to the uh, whims of the marketplace. Um, and you have that, uh, that sh- secure income for the rest of your life. Um, enhancement number four, number four is the one that kind of ties everything together because um, people might ask, well, how, how do I know how much income I can actually draw? There's different rules out there. I don't think any of those rules are very good, including the 4% uh, rule. Um, so enhancement four is uh, determining how much income you can actually get from a given amount of assets. And initially I, I thought about trying different rules of thumb to help people work it out. But by the time I wrote or finished my first edition of uh, Retirement Income for Life five years ago, I decided the only way to do it is by having a retirement calculator Obviously, there's other calculators out there. I think mine is the only one that explicitly takes into account the, uh, the first three enhancements. Uh, it's called PERC, P-E-R-C, uh, Personal Enhanced Retirement Calculator. In any event, uh, PERC does that. It does the, uh, the calculation for you, so you, uh, you have a, a good idea of how much income you can draw safely in retirement. Enhancement five is what you use if all the other enhancements fail. Uh, when I look at uh, the assets you can use to uh, produce retirement income, I explicitly uh, ignore uh, the equity that you have in your home. Now, the equity in the home is worth a lot. In fact, it may be the biggest asset for a lot of Canadians. Um, however, they're going to have to live there for, for their whole lives. However, there still are ways to tap that, uh, that equity in the home, even without, without ever having to leave. And the main idea there is a reverse mortgage, which uh, is kind of a dirty word to a lot of people. But if you analyze it, it makes a lot of sense under very uh, spe- special circumstances. You have to be 70 or 75 to, to before you even think about uh, starting 
uh, about buying a, a reverse mortgage as far as I'm concerned. And if you do so, you can um, you can uh, you can have that additional income for the rest of your life, just in case you do end up uh, having an income shortfall later on. So that's been a fantastic summary of the five points. I wanted to see now if we could maybe go back, double back and go to each of the five in sequence and unpack them in a little more detail. So the first is uh, lowering your investment costs. And that's something that I've written about uh, in, in my previous book, Stand Up to the Financial Services Industry. And then again, uh, I touch on it a little bit in, in Bullshift, my, my current book. A lot of investors, uh, are still using traditional actively managed high cost and in many cases embedded compensation mutual funds and those products um, are only very nominally cheaper today in 2023 than they were 30 years ago they're cheaper uh, you know the the industry has probably gotten about 10 or 12 times bigger and costs have only come down maybe 10 or 12 percent and they there should be an economy of scale but uh, but the fact of the matter is the industry will will charge what the market will bear and canadians are notoriously uh inelastic in their in their willingness to pay high fees in in funds could you perhaps talk about comparing and contrasting building portfolios using individual stocks and bonds versus using exchange traded funds and versus versus using actively managed uh more expensive mutual funds and perhaps give a sense of what the sensitivity might be in terms of your retirement progno prognosis in terms of how much longer you can live. Okay, so in the case of actively managed funds, retail mutual funds, you're looking at, for especially for the equity funds, you're looking at fees of 2%, 2.5%, somewhere right. even more than 2.5% per year. Um, whereas well, if you're going to be in exchange-traded funds, and I'm looking at the, the core uh, funds, like, for example, the core uh, Standard & Poor's 500 index, the core S&P TSX index, which is the Canadian stocks, uh, the universe bond funds and uh, an MSC, MSCI international. So look at those four, four funds, for example. And if you simply put, um, take a percentage of each of those, once you've decided what your asset mix ought to be, 60-40, 70-30, 50-50, whatever you decide it should be, just put the money into those four funds, rebalance every once in a while. And with the kind of fees you're going to be facing in the, with those four funds, are about uh, 10 or 12, maybe 15 basis points. But so, but that means like uh, 0 0.1 to 0.15% uh, per year in funds. So to give you an idea as to how low that is, if you're investing $1,000, it would mean that you're you're paying about $1.20 a year. So it really is peanuts. And, and I think I mentioned uh, that I had um, uh, done a chart for the Global Mail a couple of weeks ago and I compared uh, portfolio of those four ETFs I just mentioned against the performance of the uh, Ontario Teachers Pension Plan. Uh, the OTPP has $250 billion in assets. They actually spend hundreds of millions of dollars a year for investment management, a very active management. They have the uh, capacity and the ability to invest in all kinds of alternative investments as well, like infrastructure, private equity, and such. And as a result, they have that, that much more leeway. Uh, they have 350 investment specialists. So you figure there's no way in the world that you, know, you the, the little investor uh, putting in only $1.20 a year for your $1,000 investment could possibly match that. Uh, in any event, since 2014, I showed that the returns would have been just about the same, maybe even a touch higher with your ETFs than would have been with the OTPP. 
and I wasn't trying to pick on them. I, I they were yeah. simply the easiest uh, target to uh, to go after. But I got a feeling it would have been the same with the other other mega funds as well. So you can do very well with ETFs. It's funny because uh, you may you may know who John Bogle is, and one of the one of the phrases that Mr. Bogle uh, uses, he was the founder of Vanguard. He says, "You get what you don't pay for." And the <laughs> the interesting thing about the financial investment uh, product industry is that it might investment products might be the only products around where price correlates negatively to to utility, which is to say, the higher the the product's cost, uh, the less useful it is for you because the, that product cost is going to be eating into the return that you'll be realizing. Um, I think it might be worth pointing out just, just in the, for the sake of completeness that uh, obviously if you're buying the ETFs, the exchange traded funds by themselves at 15 or 20 or 25 basis points at a quarter of a percent per year or less, uh, you're not getting advice. And if you're buying a mutual fund, you might be paying two and a quarter percent, but part of that goes to pay an advisor the point that I would add, however, is that even if you hired an advisor and paid a traditional 1%, it's entirely possible that you would still be saving yourself 1%, uh, 0.25 for the ETF portfolio, 1% for, uh, for the advice that goes with it for one and a quarter all in, as opposed to perhaps two and a quarter all in if you're using mutual funds. So there's still, uh, the, the, the product savings is, is an absolute savings in comparing apples and apples, mutual funds that don't pay any, don't pay the advisor anything and ETFs that don't pay the advisor anything. The advisor will then pay whatever he or she charges. Hopefully it'll be worth it. That'll be up to you to decide. But at any rate, the um, lower cost products exist and you can get every bit as much diversification and in many cases more diversification, which is another way of saying lower risk by using the lower cost products. And so, it's it's astonishing that uh, it's low hanging fruit, and it amazes me that uh, advisors are not as willing or, for whatever reason, able to actively embrace lower cost product options because it goes straight to the client's bottom line and maximizes the uh, the, the lifetime and retirement for the client and and their quality of life and retirement, and yet so many advisors seem to resist it. So that's right. It's and, a and, and I, I fully, I fully acknowledge that not, not everyone's going to be comfortable going to uh, an RBC or some other some other provider and 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 buying their own ETFs and then trying to put together their own portfolio and manage it. It's uh, it does take a bit of expertise to do that. You can learn it, but it, it uh, people will never some people will never feel comfortable doing that. As a result of which, uh, yeah, they can go with an advisor instead. And uh, you know, while you might be able to get your fees all the way down to. Uh, below the 0.6% level that I mentioned in the book, any kind of reduction is, is going to be a good reduction. So if you get it down from 2% to 1%, you're still doing very well. Right, exactly. Let's move on to the second point, which is uh, sharing the risk by deferring your Canada pension plan. And I think uh, people know this, that most people take their CPP at around age 65, but you can uh, uh, your, your actual amount that you're entitled to goes down by 0.6% per month. Uh, any time for the first five years from age 60 to 65, which is 0.36% over the course of the uh, over the course of those five years, if you started on your 60th birthday, but you can actually gain 0.7% per month, which is 42% uh, if you wait until your 70th birthday. And uh, we've done some research. I I've been involved with an organization called the uh, the FP Canada Research Foundation with regard to when when Canadians take their CPP, and it's exactly as you say, the very large majority of Canadians 
take it on their 65th birthday or earlier. Relatively few wait until sometime after. And because the focus of my book, Bullshift, is about optimism bias, I'm wondering if you, Fred, could offer your thoughts on the perverse psychology of people thinking, I, I want to live a long time uh, and, and they're, because they're optimistic about how long they're going to live, but they're also simultaneously pessimistic about how long they're likely to, uh, to last in terms of government entitlements. And yeah, you know, it's it's complicated. I don't think they're actually necessarily pessimistic. They might say they are, but at least when, when they're trying to justify why they don't want to take their Canada pension plan uh, late. But um, so I'm, I'm not sure that they necessarily think that they're not going to live a long time, but that's what they'll say. They'll say, they, I don't think they will. Uh, on the other hand, they do hope that they, they will. Um, I think the major reason why people, and by the way, in my book, I, I give three kinds of reasons as to why people don't don't start the CPP late. One of them, some some reasons are simply silly or invalid reasons. Some are rational, like you can actually nod your head, say, I, I get it, but they're still wrong. And then finally, there are a few reasons which are actually good reasons for not taking it. Um, so when you look at the reasons which are, well, the silliest reason for not taking it, people have said, and I've already even heard this from a financial advisor who shall remain unnamed, that, well, some people want to, want to you know, enjoy the money while they're young. Well, who said they can't? You just don't take the CPP. You take other sources of income. Money's fungible. It doesn't matter where the source comes from as long as you get enough income when you're young. Um, as for why they don't do it, it's simply the, the bird in the hand argument. No, I'm sorry. It's not even that. It's more a matter of people hate the idea of leaving money uh, with the government or with an insurance company. The other reason why they all don't take annuities because if they die young, then the insurance company coops up their, the rest of their money. And people of course, the, the, the irony is that if you if you defer, you actually get more money and you're actually leaving more money in the government's hands by taking your entitlements earlier because you're receiving less than you otherwise would in all likelihood, depending on your life expectancy, which is unknown at the outset. Right, right. And I, I, I thought one of the most classic um, comments I got, I read the comments every once in a while for my articles in the Global Mail when I was uh, arguing that you ought to start your CPP late. They, the person said, imagine how mad you would be if you died young and you left all that money on the table. Well, of course, you're not going to be too mad if you're actually dead. And that's the thing about it, the, the asymmetry, the, all the regrets going to happen if you start early and live until late because you're actually alive to be feeling that regret. The other way around, you're not going to be feeling it. But another reason why people don't take it is because they underestimate life expectancy. A lot of people think that life expectancy, say if you're a 65-year-old male, it's going to be around age 81, 82. Um, so that's your life expectancy. In actual fact, that's measured from birth. And you don't measure from birth if you've already reached age 65 because you've avoided, you know, you've dodged all kinds of bullets uh, already to, to get there. And actually your life expectancy is closer to 87, 88, you know, depending upon socioeconomic status. But around there, if you're a woman, it's very close to 90. Um, so that's your real life expectancy. And that's what they ought to be uh, basing their analysis on. Um, so the, I think the vast majority of people ought to be taking it at uh, at 70 or maybe the December of the year before they turn 70, like last year. And that's the, that was a special quirk. I don't know if you remember my yes. article about that. The, I have another theory that I'd like to share with you. I don't know if other people have put it out there, but I will say it. And that is it's not a very flattering one with regard to financial advisors. 
uh, some financial advisors, as you say, money is fungible. You can take the money from whatever source you have. But obviously, if an advisor, if a client is taking their money from CPP and they're not taking the money out of their RIF, or they're taking the minimum, but not more, they would they would perhaps be be inclined to take more than the minimum out of their RIF if they needed to make up for a shortfall. Uh, then their RIF would be smaller, and the advisor would be able to make less money by charging a fee on those assets. So there's a certain amount of uh, conflict that that some financial advisors might find themselves in, and, and they might be giving advice that's in conflict because of their own self-interest. They're trying to maximize the money they they manage, even if it means a suboptimal outcome for the clients they represent. I, I don't know if you want to weigh in on that because it's a bit contentious. I don't think I'll say about that is, um, yeah, yes, there, there is that conflict of interest they've got, and it's a, it's a very direct conflict of interest. I, I, I don't want to be cynical and say that that's actually what, what motivates them. I believe that the majority of advisors are actually trying to give good advice, but I think it colors their judgment. Right. And so what they'll do is they'll be more likely to grasp at straws as to why people ought to be taking uh, their CPP early. Um, right. And there, as I said, there are some reasons which are quasi-rational, but in actual fact, they don't really hold water at the end of the day. Yeah. So a lot of what we talk about in Bullshift is, is behavioral biases. And a lot of that is motivated reasoning and finding ways to justify what you really want as opposed to what the evidence would lead you to. And, and I think that's the way I want to portray it too, because I'm not trying to cast aspersions on all advisors. I'm just saying that this is the reason that I put forward a moment ago is strikes me as being plausible, but it's a bit of a dirty secret that most people don't like to talk about in polite company because it doesn't reflect all that well on on advisors. That doesn't make it untrue. It just makes it awkward. And and that's all I'm saying. I'm not trying to, to cast aspersions. Let's move on to number three, which is a, I'm going to call it a first cousin of number two, which is sharing the risk by doing other things. You mentioned uh, you mentioned annuities, but there are also products out there, some of which you've been some you've been a consultant on that allow you to do some risk pooling, uh, so that you, if you live a long time, you don't have to worry about the vicissitudes of what capital markets do. You can you can have a confidence that you're going to be having an income stream for as long as you live. Maybe so talk about that. The idea behind buying a life annuity is that it's it'll, it'll give you a stream of income. So, for example, if you spend hundred thousand dollars on a life annuity, you're around eight sixty-five. You're going to be getting um, an amount an, an amount of like six thousand dollars a year for the rest of your life. Um, so if you live until age 105, just look at the $6,000 a year every year. What it's doing is, as far as that money is concerned, the, the 100000 that you've just allocated, it is. Uh, it means that it's no longer exposed to any investment risk. It's no longer exposed to any longevity risk. I mean, no matter how long you live, you're going to get that money. You, will, you won't outlive that money. So that's the good thing about it. Um, so my thinking on annuities has morphed a little bit since the, my first edition of the book in 2018. I'm still including them as an enhancement, um, but they aren't as, and in, in fact, ironically, you would say, well, they ought to be even better now than they were back then, because back then interest rates were like 2%. Now long-term yeah, long bond yields are more like 4%. You might say, what does that have to do with annuities? Well, that's the underlying, that's the way the insurance companies price them. The higher the interest rate, the lower the cost of annuities. In other words, the more, the more annuity income you can get. Um, so you ought to be, you would be able to get more now than you could have gotten five years ago. However, what's changed in the world is inflation. Um, I thought it was pretty much dead. It had been for 30 years, but turned out to be only dormant. And of course it's spiked. And what it makes me realize is that even if this passes and it will, um, we just never know when it might flare up again. It's so there's always a possibility that it will flare up again. 
in five or 10 or 20 years time for a totally different reason. It's not going to be COVID again. So that's why I'm a little bit more ambivalent about annuities than I used to be. I still say, yeah, sure. If you want to allocate 15, 20% of your money toward buying one, yeah, it's going to give you some peace of mind. Um, and even in case you do live to 100, same as your, your great act. Um, uh, but there are other products out there. I, I'm um, an advisor to um, Purpose Investments uh, who've, uh, who've uh, launched a product called the Longevity Pension Fund. And what that is, it's kind of like an annuity. You might allocate $100,000. The amount of money you get initially will be slightly more than the annuity, the $6,000. Um, the great thing is that if you live a very long time, like over 85, 90, uh, the amount that you get should be going up and, and almost sure, surely will be going up. They've done a lot of studies on this. Now, it's different from an annuity because there is some risk. Um, if the investment performance over the long term is very bad, then uh, then they they may have to cut the, the amount that they're, they're, they're distributing to people. Um, but the odds are you're going to get more. It, it, the... The scenario shows that you're going to get more, uh, probably for sure. Certainly, if you live until 95, 100, you'll get a lot more than you would with an annuity. And the great thing about it is that it's it's got some built-in inflation protection simply because it's still invested in the market. And um, and and bonds and stocks may not like uh, inflation very much, but they do tend to kind of float with that over the longer term. Unlike the annuity I was just talking about, which is going to be uh, worth less and less over time if we do have high inflation again. Perfect. Let's talk about PERT. What, why, what can you tell people about uh, how you do the calculations and what your thinking is and why you think uh, traditional rules of thumb, such as the so-called 4% rule, aren't that great anymore? Well, ever... uh, I've actually I actually uh, talked about the 4% rule in my book, uh, Retirement Income for Life, and I show that um, if your investment returns are, are poor enough, I actually use what I call 10th percentile returns. These are returns mm -hmm. which on a year by year basis are are better than only 10% of all possible outcomes that you can think of. Um, so those are bad returns that would be roughly around uh, two and a half, three 3% a year uh, before, before fees, if you have a, um, let's say a 60, 40 portfolio. Um, so, and I show that if you uh, try the 4% rule with those kinds of returns that you will, you will, you, you will, you, you will, you will run, run short of money sometime probably in your late 70s early 80s but you will run run out of money so it just doesn't work um so perk uh is something that you'd have to revisit every year or every two years it it actually does the calculation for you using all the principles in the book and it uh, computes how much income you can get um it should be pretty safe uh, the um, a starting amount is geared to be pretty safe because i do use a pretty low interest rate in order to work it out uh, however, I do I, I, I encourage people to go back every every year or two years, and uh, and there is a there's a free version of Perk as well as a custom version. Custom version lets you play with all kinds of assumptions. You might try different interest rates, three, four, five, six percent. You might try different contribution rates to see what uh, uh, how how you would do if you do stay for a few more years. You might you might want your money to last until age 98 instead of age 93. I might want to have more money left at the end of the day. All those kinds of things that can be different. So you can customize that. And there would be a, a nominal fee for the custom version. That's great. I think that's also a real step forward because a lot of people, the solve for X part of the equation is as much art as it is science. And there are a lot of things that need to be adjusted 
perhaps modestly, but nonetheless adjusted on an ongoing basis when when markets move and when people, you know, digest new information, whatever that may be, selling the house or having, you know, whatever else. So it's good that you've you've actually come up with a way to to, to deal with that. That's wonderful. Let's talk about uh, reverse mortgages. It's as you say, it's really just a last resort sort of hail mary that people can use if all else fails. And so I don't think you really recommend it as being a, a core strategy, but it's a it's a decent fallback. So maybe just a moment to explain that. Well, I, had, I actually even had a hard time um, in terms of invoking uh, and trying to find a scenario in which uh, it, it would actually call for use of, of a reverse mortgage. So in my book, I said, well, if you actually uh, incorporated the first three enhancements and religiously followed enhancement four using Perk, that it would be actually hard to find a scenario into which you'd have to use it because you would probably be safe. You would be okay. Um, but if uh, inflation was really high and a couple of other things went wrong, like you suddenly had some very high expenditures, like emergency expenditures, um, then it's possible that you may have to do it. I suggest you wait until your mid seventies before you do it for a couple of reasons. One is the way that a reverse mortgage works is, um, the insurance company will will give you a, a chunk of money. Maybe you want to get $100,000. What you do then do is then you, you owe them that money. It is actually accruing interest, and it, the interest will be higher than just a regular mortgage, by the way. So your, the amount you have to pay back is going to be growing with that higher amount of interest, which probably is the reason why people don't like reverse mortgages very much. It's also one reason why I say start at around age 75 as opposed to starting at age 60. Um, yeah, but the other, the great thing about reverse mortgages is that no matter how long you live, they can never kick you out of the house. You can, you can never say, well, you know, the amount has not grown to such a level that you no, know, you can no longer stay in that house. You can stay in there as long as you live or as long as your spouse lives. So you you, you won't have that you won't have that issue. Um, and once again, if you do the modeling and let's say you allocate twenty percent of you, so you want to get, um, uh, I guess, a regular amount of of money from that reverse mortgage, I really I had a hard time finding a scenario under which you'd be using up all, all the equity in your home. It really isn't going to ha be happening. Um, now, you want to be doing it in order, I think, to to maintain the kind of income level or the kind of lifestyle that you've you've been used to. I don't know if you want to use it to to enhance, but even on that, I've been shrugging my shoulders and saying, what the hell? If you're 78 and you want to suddenly have a better lifestyle, you have all this equity in your home that is going to be uh, going to your, your ungrateful kids when you die, then what the hell? You may as well use some of that right now. So I, I have more trouble with it uh, after after age 75. It's much less likely you're going to be moving or wanting to move after 75 than if you were still age 60. Great. All right, Fred, let's wrap this up here with the way that I like to end all these podcasts, which is uh, the first thing that I talk about is that's bullshit. That's where I invite people like you to point out something, anything at all in the financial services industry that sticks in your craw that you think could be done differently, and and, and by differently I mean better. What what can you think of that that really isn't the best about the industry well, right now? There's a whole bunch of things you can pick. Uh, to me, the most obvious one is the 70% income target. People are told again and again that they need to save enough money uh, so that they can produce a retirement income equal to 70% of their final final income in their final few years before before retirement. Um, and I, I've done many examples. Uh, the most recent was in my book, The Rule of 30, but I've also talked about it. Actually, I don't talk about it in Retirement Income for Life, but I do talk about it in Rule of 30. So I show that the majority of us 
don't ever have a chance to spend more than 50% of our gross income during our lifetime on, on ourselves. And here's why uh, we have a mortgage on our house, which might be consuming, well, these days, anywhere between 50 and 35% of our, our gross income. Um, we, uh, we're raising children. That may be another 20, 25% of our gross income. We're paying income tax uh, based on a, a higher earnings level. That might be another 20, 30 or 30%. And when you deduct all those uh, those things, and finally we're saving for retirement, and that'll be a number of ten or fifteen percent roughly. But when you subtract all those off the hundred percent, you're only left with uh, most of us living on about thirty-five to forty-five, maybe fifty percent of our income during our our working years. And all of a sudden, then in retirement, they say, "Well, you need seventy percent." Now, you have, hopefully by then the mortgage is paid off. Hopefully by then the kids are self-supporting and grown up and have left the house. Uh, you're no longer saving for retirement. You no longer have employment expenses. So where, where does it go to? Well, there's still income tax, but it's going to be a much smaller number for a bunch of reasons than it was before retirement. So 70%, maybe it nets out, that would net out to about 60 some odd percent, which is going to be more income than you ever had before retirement. And you might say, well, that's what I want. Fine. As long as you're doing that with your eyes wide open, but it's not, it's not what you need. It's not even what you're used to. Um, so 70% is not what people need. Um, if you were to pick, to pick one number, it would be more like 50%. And I just wish the, the industry would get there. Um, there are, once again, you talked about some, some conflicts of interest uh, in terms of uh, why people give certain kinds of advice. There's another conflict of interest as to why they, they don't lower that income target. The banks uh, want people to put more money away as opposed to putting less money away. Which brings us to the final point, which is shift happens. If it was up to you and you could shift the way the industry does things, specifically with regard to this 70% target, what would you do? How would you recommend? How would you how would you go about changing it? It's obvious that you would want to change it. How? I don't know how I'd change it. I just wish that everybody would start saying it's not necessarily 70%, probably isn't 70%. It's probably more like 50 or 50%. And so let's kind of start with there. And then let's say, let's, if that's going to be your target, let's save to the correct target for retirement. Thank you, Fred. Once again, for the people watching at home, Fred's book is Retirement Income for Life, a wonderful book that I read when it came out and I've been using it in my own life. Thank you, Fred, for, uh, for, for joining me today. For those of you watching at home, please uh, like and subscribe. We really need your support. It's very much appreciated. And thank you for joining me. All the best. Okay, John, thanks a lot. John DeGuey is a portfolio manager in Toronto and the author of the book, Bullshift, How Optimism Bias Threatens Your Finances. Bullshift is available online and in bookstores everywhere. The opinions expressed in this podcast should not be construed as investment advice. Bullshift, the podcast, is produced by TalkShoe, a division of IOTUM. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.